Isn't it interesting the way in which our faith causes just odd things in our life to be different than normal? Have you noticed this? Like there are things about Christians that are just a bit weird. Um, One of the things that I found when I was a new Christian is um, standing together in a group and singing. When I, before, before being a Christian, the only time I ever did that was happy birthday. And now it's a thing that we do all the time. Um, we have different attitudes towards family. Uh, we have different attitudes towards television shows. We have different attitudes towards all sorts of things from what is, what is normal. Um, and perhaps one of the things about us which is the most strange is our attitude towards money. The fact is that if you come to worship Jesus as your saviour... Uh, that transforms your relationship with wealth. It's, it's just a thing that we approach differently as people of faith um, than, than, we could, than, than, than people who don't share our faith could possibly approach it. There's just a different meaning to life, and so there's a different meaning to stuff. And we are coming to this theme in the book of Nehemiah. To be honest, not the thing I'd choose to preach today, uh, but that's the joy of, of making our way through the book of um, through whole books of the Bible, we let, we let the, the Bible itself set the agenda for our time together. Um, so a quick recap. Here we are at the, um, near the end of Nehemiah, remembering a part of Israel's history, the beginning of the end of the exile. The walls are built. The temple is good to go. The people have come together with one mind and asked their leaders that they would be taught the Bible so that they could live in the way that they were meant to and not repeat all the mistakes of the past which had led to the exile. Um, So the Bible is opened, the covenant that they had made with God is read out loud and the people go through that process. Um, When the Bible is opened, we hear God speak. When we hear God speak, it brings conviction and sorrow. Grace turns conviction and sorrow into joy and joy leads to obedience. And so we've been kind of um, making our way through, in, in, in light of that, they've been going for a couple of weeks now, or, or at least over a week, um, the people have written, they've drafted up this covenant renewal letter. This, Okay, this is what we're going to do. These are the things which are urgent for our obedience. These are the parts of God's law which we have definitely been breaking. Um, these are the things we're going to focus on in order to live as God's people in the land moving forwards. And we've heard uh, uh, about how they wanted to address the problems in their attitude towards marriage. They'd been intermarrying with people who were not believers. We saw last week that they are wanting to rejuvenate their practice of the Sabbath day. Uh, and this week, we consider the last commitment, which actually takes the, uh, the longest portion of their letter. Um, they decide they want to be faithful when it comes to the temple tithes. Let's have a read from Nehemiah 10, going from verse 32. The people declare, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, 
year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God, is the summary. There's a lot of things that they're talking here about needing to collect, to gather together. They're all around a central theme. All of these commitments represent different ways, different laws that have to do with keeping specifically the temple functioning the way that God intended it to. That's what all these tithes and offerings and all of this activity is going to be about. And all of these commitments come to them from the the Mosaic law. When the Hebrews left Egypt by the mighty hand of God and his outstretched arm, through Moses, God had brought them to the land in due time, and then uh, on conquering the land, the land was divided out uh, as an inheritance amongst the various tribes of Israel. The land of Canaan, um, the geographic regions are given one to each tribe. This is the area where Benjamin lives. This is the area where Judah lives. This is the area where Gad, my personal favorite, lives. We heard a little bit about that last week when we read and we saw that in the year of Jubilee, ancestral lands were to be returned to their covenant owners. You might remember that. Um, But what we didn't read was that the tribe of Levi was to be treated differently than all the other tribes. Um, We can hear about this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, which says, At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister to Him and to bless His name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. The inheritance that Levi did not receive, along with the other tribes, was a region of the promised land to call their own. Um, there, is, there is no part of the map of Israel that you can point to or write the word Levi. There's no region of Levi. They were given places to live, but no land. There's nowhere for them to grow their own crops and be self-sufficient and independent and identifiable. And what is more, because of those laws around land ownership, Levi can't permanently buy any producing land. Let's say they came into wealth and thought, we don't like this deal, we'd like to change it. Well, every 50 years on the year of Jubilee, it would have reverted back to its covenantal ownership. The land belonged to the tribes who God gave it to as an inheritance. That's, that's the word, an inheritance. A portion of their, their father's estate. And so I suppose that begs the question, why did Levi miss out as one of the brothers on receiving a portion of the inheritance? And the reason for this is given to us 
the tribe of Levi were to become the priests of the whole nation. They had a special role. It were the Levites and the Levites alone who were going to serve at the temple and represent the people before God. The ministry of the temple, do you understand, was not to take place under the steam of an independent class of priests who were self-sufficient and secure, separate from the rest of Israel, doing their business no matter what happened with the rest of the nation. Rather, God created for them an interdependent relationship. All of the materials required for the temple ministry, and it's a lot of materials, didn't we just read about them? They need wood, incense, animals to sacrifice, food for the priests, water for them to drink, maintenance for the building. All of these materials are going to have to come to the temple as, as tithes and offerings from the other tribes. It is only Levi who can serve in the temple, only Levi who can represent the people before God and plead for his mercy and his grace and his covenant renewal, and yet it's only the other tribes who can grow and invest and build those things that Levi needs in order to do their ministry in the temple. So there are a number of tithes and offerings described throughout the law. One tithe specifically, for example, is for the maintaining of the temple ministry through monetary tithes. Um, in Numbers 18, verses 21 and 22, we read the law, To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance. There's that word again. They don't get land, they get tithes. In return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. That's the goal. That's the plan. That's the picture of the healthy relationship that was meant to exist between Israel and the Levites. And when presented with this in the law of Moses, the people said, all this we will do. And of course, they did not. Throughout the long history of Israel, this promise was not kept consistently. A great example comes to us, for example, 100 years before the life of Nehemiah, <laughs> during the ministry of Ezra the priest and the prophet Haggai. Um, the book of Ezra begins, we're told, in the first year of Cyrus. It's about 538 BC. Uh, it begins like this. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whomever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor... And whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings from the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads and fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. That's how Ezra begins, which tells us uh, about 
the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple at the end of the exile. As an interesting read, we learn that God can use broken sticks to draw straight lines. Uh, what do we know about Cyrus, king of Persia? The Babylonians were the ones who had conquered the Hebrews at the beginning of the exile, and then at some point later, the Persians had conquered the Babylonians. And so now Cyrus has inherited the slaves, the, the exiles uh, of Israel as his subjects. He's not a worshipping man, we don't think. Um, he's, he seems to have the traditional worship of the sort of, the sort of Canaanite area. And to him, Yahweh is just a regional God. He belongs in Jerusalem. He's the God in the city of Jerusalem. And this is the God in the city of, of the other cities I can't think of right now. You know, there were regional gods, geographically located gods. And so why not? Why, why should we not have um, the Hebrews go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple so that we can honor their local deity and get his blessing? And through the, <laughs> through the arrogance of this man, who believes that the God of heaven has given him all the kingdoms of the earth. He releases the Hebrews from an ancient binding, uh, an, an old binding law, and says, it is now time, you can go back to Jerusalem, and you can rebuild the temple. And then rose up, we said, we, we, we read, the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everybody who has, whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house. They went off to build it, didn't they? And so we can imagine that two weeks later, the temple was built. Until we read Haggai, which begins in 520 BC, by my reckoning, 18 years later, after what had happened with, um, with Cyrus there. Haggai begins with this. It says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Anyone having a son soon? I want a Jehozadak in the church. That's a pretty cool name. I will accept Zerubbabel as a second best. <laughs> Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. 18 years since they've been given permission to go back and do it. Thus, says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord, the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. <laughs> Whenever God pulls you aside and says, consider your ways. That's a moment. It's a good parenting technique, actually. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. He knows me. <laughs> Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, 
and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. After Haggai delivers this message to the people, we read in verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. We know that Ezra eventually saw through the rebuilding of the temple before the time of Nehemiah. And now here we are, under Nehemiah, another hundred years later, and the walls of the city have been finished, but it seems that the people still haven't learnt this lesson. They'd been set free to build the temple, and for 18 years they'd done nothing until God gave them a consider your ways talk. Then suddenly they'd found the will and the effort to rebuild the temple, and here a hundred years later under Nehemiah, it appears they've gone back to neglect. Isn't that a tragic? Isn't that a tragedy? This is part of the sorrow of Nehemiah 8. The people have realized the word has brought them to a moment of clarity, and now they promise to start coming through with their promises to support the ministry of the temple, which is central to their worship of Yahweh under the covenant of Moses. They commit to a few kinds of financial support. They promise to bring their tithes. A tithe is literally just a tenth of what you earn and what you grow. If I earn $100, I tithe 10. If I get paid wheat for a job, I tithe a tenth of my wheat. When things come in, 10% goes out. That's the tithe for the temple and the people commit to giving it. The other commitment that they give is the commitment to give from their first fruits. And I love this principle. The first fruits um, is a principle that says when you've planted a new field, when your livestock have babies, uh, when you have babies, the first fruits are to be given to God. There was, uh, that doesn't mean, by the way, that they gave away their babies. It just meant that when you had your firstborn, um, there was a process by which they could give something to God to say thank you and, quote-unquote, redeem the baby. There was an offering that you give, um, which is meant to be the first portion of everything that you have. First fruits can literally mean just the first bit. But it also carries the concept of the best bit. Giving your first fruits is to give, it's, it's like I'm going to work hard as a kid who's just got their first job and my first paycheck comes in and that paycheck, I mean some people like, there's, there's the stereotype of the person who loves money too much and keeps the first, the first dollar they ever earn sort of framed and on a wall somewhere. The person who gives their first fruits to God takes that dollar and gives it to God. Um, giving your first fruits to God brings our attention all the way back to Genesis and the time of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, where we are told, in the course of time, Genesis 4.3, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And that's how we end up with the murder of Abel. 
Abel's offering was particularly pleasing to the Lord because he had given his first fruits. He had given the firstborn of his flock. He had given the fatty portions, which, by the way, is the best portion of meat. We've all been misled for our entire lives. Fat is delicious. Actually, I just, we just had dinner with the Westies on Friday night, and, and Mike was cooking these, like, what are they called? Pork, pork things. It was like half meat, half fat, a little bit of skin, the way meat should be. First fruits. This Abel had given to God. It's a lovely concept. Because something has to happen in the heart, doesn't it? For you to give the first fruits to God. Something has to be happening. What are you doing when you give him your first fruits? You are saying, God, everything I have is from you and is yours. And I love you more than I love your gifts to me. Here, have it back. That's what the first fruits offering is. It's a lovely concept. And here in Nehemiah, the people promise not to neglect their tithes and to give of their first fruits to God. The people promise through these kinds of offerings to not neglect the ministry of the temple, to make sure that they are represented before God and the covenant is maintained and that they continue to receive God's blessing. It's a beautiful thing. It's the product of spiritual renewal. Of course, once we've dealt with all of that, now we step into the new covenant and our own day and we ask, does this commitment that the Hebrews have made have anything to do with the way you and I worship under the ministry of Jesus? And the answer is yes. However, the arrival of Jesus has changed these concepts quite a bit. The first big change that you and I need to be aware of is that the ministry of Jesus completely obliterates the category of priests. There is no longer, under Jesus, a priestly class separate from everybody else. Uh, In Catholicism, their ministers are called priests. But I am not called that. Sometimes people who don't know much about church will call me that, and I won't correct them just to be polite. But the difference is not accidental, it's principled. Why do I not go by the title priest? Why is Mike not my priest? Because Jesus himself is now our high priest. 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6 teaches us, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. What that is saying is that when Jesus died and the temple curtain was torn in two, the separation between us and God ended. Through the finished work in the death and resurrection of Jesus, both you and I are now welcome to come near to God and his presence without the need of another human intermediary. The entire purpose of the temple has been fulfilled and superseded by the ministry of Christ. I don't need a human priest because Jesus himself is my priest and he stands in the presence of the Father representing me with his intercession both day and night and in his hands I am secure. I know as a Christian that I will never come under the wrath of God because God the Son pleads my cause. His blood intercedes on my behalf and because of this I am welcome to boldly approach the throne of grace 
For us, there is no priest. And for us, there is no temple. At least, not in that sense. There is no place on earth. There is no special holy building where we must go in order to approach God. It doesn't work like that anymore. Now, God has put his spirit within us. And the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, is no longer a building, but in the hearts of every believer, the spirit-filled people of God. The church of believers is the place where God has made his dwelling in our day. There is no special people anywhere on this earth who can represent you before God. Jesus has done that for us all on his own. And so, rather than having a category of priests, it turns out he has made us a kingdom of priests. We are all priests. We are all ministers, not of the temple sacrifices, but of the gospel. And so maintaining a priesthood has got nothing to do with our attitude towards money. Rather, we live under two principles. And those two principles are generosity and faithfulness. Generosity means that the gospel of of grace causes us to overflow with a glad generosity with all we have. Not just some of what we have, not just a tithe of what we have, but all of what we have because the Lord has treated us so kindly. The two clearest examples I can think of of this kind of generosity are the good Samaritan who gives to his enemy at his own expense, out of kindness, and the widow with her coins, who gives out of her poverty, and Jesus says that gift is worth far more in God's kingdom than the gifts of a wealthy man. The gospel calls us to generosity. It calls us to faithfulness. It calls us to faithfully contribute to the cause of the gospel in our churches and beyond. It's when generosity merges with the heartbeat of wanting to see the work of our hands put to work that is of eternal significance. Knowing that what we have, we will leave behind and wanting to see it prosper in an eternal kingdom. Let's consider this generosity we've been called to. Grace transforms the laws around money and turns them into a higher thing. In the New Testament church, Paul led the collection of an offering from among the Gentile churches to take back to the saints in Jerusalem to help the church in Jerusalem during a time of famine. We read about it in a few places, but let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting from verse 5, it says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, and he has given to the poor his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is New Testament generosity. It's not an exaction. It's not to be extracted like a rotten tooth that I've got to get dealt with in the near future. It's not to be done under compulsion. Not a matter of law. Not a matter of force. It is to be done with a glad and generous heart. God loves a cheerful giver. And the cheerfulness is the point even more so than the money itself is. I know that I have been treated better than I deserve. Let me pass that on. Why cheerful? Because a cheerful offering comes from the heart as an act of worship, like the first fruits. Giving God healthy portions of what you have to meet the needs of others. Simply because you love God more than your stuff is a generous living. What all of this means, of course, is that tithing is a practice that is not mandated for the church. We do not tithe as a matter of law. The tithes of Leviticus have ended. Your church cannot stand in front of you and specify a numeric value to define how much of your income you are meant to give to God. You are not sinning if you do not give a tithe. It cannot be said in that way. There are many Christians, myself included, who choose to use tithing as a healthy starting point for our generosity, but that is a choice. Rather, we live under the radical banner of generosity And we give to God out of the overflow of a glad heart which trusts God to meet all of our needs. This is Christian generosity. Now let's consider the other principle of Christian giving, which is faithfulness. Faithfulness is about following through on the promises that you've made and doing your part. (laughs) That's what faithfulness is. I am faithful to my wife when I keep my vows to her and I live as someone um, who is living in the way that I promised. We said before that there are no special priests in the New Testament, and that is true. But we haven't said it all yet. Because now we must also say that the New Testament does talk about contributing to the needs of your local church in order to enable ministry to happen, not the priestly ministry, but rather the teaching of the word. 
uh, it is necessary that we as Christians join with the local church in order to fulfill God's plan for our life and contribute to the needs of that local church in order for that ministry to continue. Fun fact, when the Apostle Paul is establishing this principle, he justifies it less from the laws about supporting the priesthood and more from the laws about supporting cows. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. From verse 7 he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, I'm not entirely familiar with what that Old Testament practice was. I think it's got something to do with making wheat. You get the the wheat seeds together and you've got to turn them into flour. And so, because you don't have a motor, you need an ox. And so, I don't know whether the ox is (laughs) like, like in a wine barrel with the wheat walking around in a circle or if he's just dragging like a mill wheel behind him around in circles. But the picture is that the ox is treading the grain to turn it into something useful for the people. And the law of Moses says, if you're going to use an ox in that way, you can't muzzle it. You can't put something over its mouth. It has to be allowed to eat some of the thing that it's working on. And Paul asks, Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does not he certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in the hope and the thresher should thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. And so if we, he's talking about people who um, have a vocational ministry, have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not even we, uh, sorry, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? So he does go there eventually. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul here describes a principle that he personally did not always make use of, but he insists nonetheless it is a principle. Workers are worth their wages. Farmers share in the crop that they plant and harvest. And so those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And that only works through the consistent, faithful giving of the church, through your becoming church members and contributing to our budgeting process, both through your offerings and through your contributing to the direction of how that should look. Why do these things matter, ultimately? That's, that's the, that's the centre of all of this, isn't it? The centre of all of this is the hope that we would see the heart of Christ fulfilled in the whole of our lives. That we would be rescued from loving our money and seeing God as a vehicle to get more of it. To obtain some temporary 
earthly blessing as our highest goal. No, we have been rescued from that through the faithfulness of Jesus. And now we want to see all his good gifts to us put to work in this world as a stewardship. Trusting that because the grace of Jesus is for us, your stuff can lead to eternal reward. It can serve a higher purpose. It can be used in a way which will survive the grave. We share in this priesthood together according to our gifts. And so let us be generous and faithful with one another as well. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we have heard how throughout their long history, your people have not been faithful when it comes to giving their stuff to you. And it's obvious why that's a thing. We like our stuff. I feel like I have a right to my stuff, God. I worked hard to get it, and I would like to keep it. Uh, There are things in life which are easier and better if I have more stuff. There is worry that I don't have enough stuff. Or that the stuff I have will be taken away. Father, all of that are the thoughts of my fallen flesh. In reality, I live in a world where my heavenly Father loves me and has absolutely promised to meet every one of my needs. Not in a way that calls me to to stop working and to be irreverent in that way, but that causes me to work under a banner of peace and hope. I confess freely that like your people who have gone before me, I find that difficult. There are plenty of times in my life where I worry about money or where I pursue it as if it was an idol. There are so many things in my life which I think if you were to remove them from me, how could I ever be happy again? But I have obtained with my wealth. But you've been kind, Jesus. You've told us in advance that it is not possible for us to serve two masters, that we will love the one and hate the other. And so, our God, we pray, let us love you. Give us the experience of grace. Allow us to be aware of your mercy that has met our needs in such a radical and generous overflowing of your heart towards us. Allow that to shape my view of the world. Father, all that I have is yours and is a gift directly from your hand. The hands which have given me these things are not going to stop loving me suddenly. And so help me to live as if you were true. Help me to see my stuff as a means to an end and not an end in itself. Help me to understand that I am a steward, a placeholder, a temporary custodian of my wealth, and that I am to use it for you in every way. 
Father, help me to be generous with those who are in need. Let each one of us here today, if we have two coats and we meet someone with none, share with his neighbour. Let us give freely to those who ask, expecting nothing in return. Let us know that all we have is yours and those souls are more precious than money. Father, teach us faithfulness. Teach us to be like you in keeping our promises and contributing what is ours to do. In this, Father, we still need your mercy. We need you to continue to provide for us so that we can continue to provide for others. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us this day our daily bread and bless us so that we may bless. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.